0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to take up the events of Resurrection Sunday evening, the night when all the apostles were gathered together somewhere in a house in Jerusalem, and Jesus walks in on them. We'll start, even though I'm in Mark now, and I'm trying to do verse 14, only one verse in Mark because most of the events take place in the parallel chapters. I'm going to start in one of the parallel passages passages in Luke chapter 24, verses 33 through 35, which reads as follows. That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, where well, they is referring to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who met Jesus that Sunday afternoon. They turned around from Emmaus and they went back to Jerusalem. They found, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, found the eleven, the, the apostles there, and those with them gathered together, other disciples, who said, The Lord has certainly been raised and has appeared to Simon. So the eleven have already heard the good news, because Jesus somewhere, and we don't know where or when, it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians fifteen five. Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Somewhere he appeared to Simon, and he came back, and he told the eleven, and so when the disciples, two disciples on the road to Emmaus got there, they had already heard from Simon that Jesus had risen from the dead. Verse 35, Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That refers to when Jesus broke bread with them and the two disciples recognized that what he had done at the Last Supper. Of course, that assumes that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus were at the Last Supper. We don't know who one of those Disciples was the other was Cleophas, he wasn't at the last supper, so the question is is how did that breaking of the bread on the road to Emmaus? How did that remind these two disciples that Jesus was the same Jesus who broke the bread at the last supper since they weren't at the last supper? I don't have an answer to that all right. the hour this is at nighttime right before supper, that very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem by the time they got there it was nighttime it was after supper. They were gathered together in a secret place so the Jews wouldn't know where they were. They're called the Eleven. Now, there were actually ten there because Thomas was not present, but the Eleven is a title of the whole group that Luke uses. John calls them the Twelve still, even though Judas Iscariot is left and absconded. But Luke calls them the Eleven because Judas is gone, but they're still called the Eleven even though Thomas is not there. Now, others were there with gathered together with them. John Gill speculates it was the 70 who were sent out on the first missionary journey in Capernaum, plus other people, and there were both men and women there, the women who were supporting Jesus in his ministry. There's all kind of people there, probably. How big this house was, I don't know. Upper rooms of Jewish houses could hold a good many people, although I don't know how they could do that secretly. Maybe it was more than one house that they were. But it does say that those who were gathered together, it sounds like they were gathered together in one place. So I don't know who was there, but it was the apostles and some other disciples. Now I will read Mark 16:14, which is where we are. We're only going to do one verse in Mark in this audio. Later, he appeared to the eleven. That's Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. Luke has not recorded that yet. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had been resurrected. Well, who had seen him? Well, Mary Magdalene had seen and reported, so had the other women. We just saw in Luke that Simon had seen and told the other disciples. So lots of people had seen. But the ten apostles, well, eleven counting Thomas, they didn't believe. I guess it would be ten because Peter did believe. I think it also says John believed, uh, because he, when he went and ran by himself and ran with, with him and Peter and looked in the empty tomb, it says he believed. So let's give credit for two of them believing, Peter and John, but the other, 11, other, other eight that were there, plus Thomas who was not there, they did not believe. And so Jesus rebuked them for their hardness of heart. Now we pick up the narrative in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 43, starting with verse 36, which reads as such. And as they were saying these things, he himself stood among them. He said to them, Peace to you. As they, that's the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, reporting to the eleven. As they were saying to themselves in the middle of their report, he himself stood among them. He said to them, Peace be you. Now this stood among them has excited some controversy. Here's some options. His glorified body, Jesus' glorified body walked through the wall, and there he was. This is the NIV Study Bible's position. They refer to John 20, verse 19, which says that the doors were locked, and then all of a sudden he stood among them. But John Gill says that Jesus supernaturally unlocked the door and walked in. Mm, Could be. Here's a third option. Somebody could have just let him in when he knocked. (laughs) You know, Jesus did so many miracles. I don't really know that we have to Assert a miracle occurred when it's not clear that a miracle occurred. He could have just knocked and walked in, in my humble opinion. At any rate, there he was. And he said, Peace. That's Shalom, the standard Jewish greeting. But this greeting has been given new significance by the resurrection. Peace. That's probably why it's mentioned here. Peace be unto you. No need to worry anymore, guys. I know you're crying and miserable because I was crucified three days ago. But uh, hey, things are looking up. I'm resurrected. So have peace. Don't worry anymore. Verses 37 through 39 in Luke chapter 24 read as follows. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Back then in the ancient world, they were big on seeing ghosts. Remember when Jesus was walking on the water? They thought he was a ghost then. Remember when John wrote his first epistle? He was constantly fighting against docetism, the fact that Jesus was the idea, the false idea that Jesus was a ghost. and And John, to combat that, kept saying, what our eyes have seen and our hands have touched and handled... He's not a ghost. He's flesh. But anyway, they were terrified, thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And the apostles looked, and, I, and that's when they believed. doesn't say that they actually took him up on the offer to touch him. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they did, did that. They touched him, and they convinced themselves he was not a ghost. Now, why did he say, look at his hands and his feet? Because this indicated that his feet and his hands were nailed to the cross. Now, this is interesting because he has a glorified body, and yet his glorified body showed that his hands and feet were wounded. A glorified body is supposed to be perfect. I've always wondered about that. John Gill says that Jesus's body was the same numerical body that was nailed to the cross, and that and I'm saying this, uh, this means that his glorified body was not a substitute for a discarded old body. That's what Gill means. In other words, it was still the same body. There was a unity of identity, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, says, but a diversity of laws. In other words, this same body could walk through walls and do things that the non-glorified body could not do. Now, that's all speculation. I don't know. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculate that the reason he left his wound marks on his body was so that he could convince the disciples that he was was not a ghost, that he was the same Jesus that was nailed on the cross. That makes sense to me, actually. Chapter Luke 24, verses 40 through 43. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and unbelieving because of their joy, which is a strange expression if you think about it, unbelieving because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. That seems like sort of a picayune detail, but there's a reason for it. Why did he eat? Because he was hungry? No. He had just eaten, by the way, on, back from the two, seeing the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. What he was doing was demonstrating that he had a physical body and was not a ghost. As the NIV study Bible, John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown affirm, and I think they're exactly right. Now, why were they unbelieving because of their joy? Well, this is how we say it in modern English. This is too good to be true. Too good to be true. That's basically exactly what he was saying. Now, it's interesting that even though it was too good to be true, it was true. Now, they had preparation for this. They had a hard time believing, but they had a lot of preparation. Jesus told them many times before the crucifixion, I'm going to be to go down to Jerusalem, be crucified, and rise again on the third day. You know the story of Jonah in the ground for three days. All of that, uh, the women had come back and told the eleven, Hey, Jesus is risen. Mary Magdalene come back. Jesus is risen. Simon Peter has come back. Jesus is risen. <laughs> and now we have the two disciples from Emmaus. Jesus is risen. It finally sunk through their heads. Hey, it really is true. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. What an absolute glorious feeling they must have experienced then. The joy must have been inexpressible and full of glory. Now, the verb here in verse 40 is this. He showed them his hands and feet. This was many of the so-called infallible proofs that Jesus demonstrated to prove his resurrection. Let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 3. This is the Wesley New Testament translation. To whom also he presented himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. I like that translation, infallible proofs. Acts 1, 3 in the KJV. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Infallible proofs. There's too much evidence, folks. Jesus rose again from the dead. And if any skeptic would take the time to study the Gospels, he would know that this is good history. And there's no way to explain what happened except on one supposition. Jesus Christ rose again bodily from the dead. Now that ought to tell you something. Once you face that fact, then you have to deal with What did he say? Anybody that rises again from the dead demands respect and attention to his teaching. Now, other translations, instead of infallible proofs, they translate it, for example, sure proofs or convincing proofs. But at any rate, plenty of evidence here. Now let's turn to John chapter 20 to take up the narrative. John chapter 20, verse 21 says this, Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He's already, as we mentioned here in Luke he would already said, peace to you. That's in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. And now he says to them again, peace to you. Problem necessary to put them out of their fright, John Gill says. They were unbelieving because of their joy, but maybe they were a little bit excited, maybe a little bit frightened about what does this mean. But at any rate, Jesus immediately talks about the mission, the mission of the apostles to set up the church. Jesus has that on his mind, just as he had In the Olivet Discourse, before he was crucified, on the Tuesday, before the Friday he was crucified. He wants to see his church get established. I send you, John 17, verse 18. Jesus says this to his father in the high priestly prayer. This is right after the Lord's Supper. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So that's what Jesus says to the father. Then Jesus says to the disciples, just as the father has sent me, I also send you. Same thing, same idea. That's what apostles means, a sent one. So he's sending his apostles out into the world to start the church. Verse 22 in John 20. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a preview of Pentecost. Forty days later, let's see, is it 40 days, 50 days, excuse me. Fifty days later, the Holy Spirit would fall on the apostles in Jerusalem and and the other disciples in the upper room. This is sort of a strange verse. I've always been kind of uh, bef- bewildered by it. Why did he say receive the Holy Spirit? Here's some options. The NIV Study Bible says it was to give them power to make it through to Pentecost, which, of course, was going to be no easy task because of all the persecuting Jews around who were very upset about the events of the crucifixion and Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. And so that, this was a, a kind of like a pre-Pentecost blast of power according to the NIV study Bible. Another view is that this is when the disciples were regenerated. Now, I know a lot of charismatic and Pentecostals say that. I think that's a live option. I don't know if it can be proved. John Gill denies it. He says that they, the disciples were already regenerated. Well, how does Gill know that? How do we know when they got were regenerated, when they received the Holy Spirit? I don't think anybody can know. It doesn't say in the scriptures. Here's another option. This is an allusion to the first creation of man, John Gill and Adam Clark say. God breathed the spirit into Adam, if you recall, in the book of Genesis. And so Jesus is is repeating that as an object lesson to say, hey, I am creating a new race of people, the new man. Adam was the old man. I created Adam by breathing into him, my spirit into him. He fell. He screwed up. So now I'm breathing my spirit into the new man, the church, people who believe in Christ. That's not a bad idea. That could be what he was doing. John 20, verse 23, John tells the disciples, the apostles and the other disciples, Jesus tells the apostles and other disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Oh, when you say this is a Catholic, the priest can forgive sins and he can not forgive sins or got to go confession to get an absolution from the Catholic priest. Nonsense. That's not what it means. Here's a literal translation from the NIV Study Bible. Those whose sins you forgive have already been forgiven. Those whose sins you do not forgive have not been forgiven. In other words, the church, the apostles are to recognize those who have been forgiven by receiving them into the church and not recognizing those whose sins have not been forgiven by excluding them from the church. Now, the apostles did have authority to bring people into the church and exclude people from the church, but they did not have authority to forgive sins. Only Jesus can do that. Now, is the NIV Study Bible right in their literal translation, those whose sins you forgive have already been forgiven? I went and checked it out, actually. If we look in the Greek here, and if you'll excuse my terrible pronunciation of the Greek, on tinon tas hamartias On uh, That's forgive, and it's a perfect tense. If you forgive the sins of any, they have been forgiven. Perfect tense in the Greek is one, a, one that describes action that starts in the past and ends in the present. You can either emphasize the past or the present when you translate the perfect tense. My Holman Christian Study Bible says if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven, and, and so they emphasize the results of what happened in the past. But the perfect tense means you could emphasize what happened in the past. So you could translate that as those whose sins you forgive have already been forgiven in the past. And so then how study the Bible is exactly right. And those sins you do not forgive, forgive have not been forgiven or have not been retained. Those sins that you do not retain have not been retained in the past. So it's sort of ambiguous as to when the action in the past was started was was the forgiveness done after the apostles forgave or was it done in the past when jesus forgave and the apostles then recognized that previous forgiveness by jesus well unless you want to believe that human beings can forgive sins which i don't believe then the forgiveness had already happened before the disciples forgave the sins they had already been forgiven so then the disciples said okay Those sins have been forgiven by Jesus in the past, and now we forgive the sins, and now in the present they are forgiven. The NIV Study Bible says this, God does not forgive people's sins because we do so. He does not withhold forgiveness because we do so. Those who proclaim the gospel, I'm saying this, not the NIV Study Bible, those who proclaim the gospel are in effect forgiving or not forgiving sins, depending on whether the hearers accept or reject Jesus Christ. Now there's another way you can look at it. If you forgive the sins of anybody preaching, by preaching Jesus and having people accept Jesus, and therefore Jesus forgives their sins. And so, if you forgive is just shorthand for if you preach Jesus and people accept Jesus. You can look at it that way. I like to look at it just with perfect tense. All right, that's a little theologically complicated verse. We'll go now to verse 24 and 25. But one of the 12, Thomas called twin, NIV and the KGV calls him Didymus, which is the Greek. Twin is the English. But one of the twelve, Thomas called twin, was not with them when Jesus came. This is again on the first Sunday night, Resurrection Day. That evening, Thomas, for some reason, was not there when Jesus and the disciples from the road to Emmaus show up. Verse 25, So the other disciples kept telling him, we, telling Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Why? Because he had just walked in there and he had left. But he, Thomas, said to them, the other disciples, if I don't, the other apostles, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Never believe? The NIV Study Bible says this about that statement. This is hard-headed skepticism, which can scarcely go further than this. Go further than this. That is, I identify with Thomas because I was a skeptic growing up, even though I believe like Thomas. Thomas believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, I had a lot of trouble believing in the resurrection and all other kinds of miracles in the Bible, so I empathize with Thomas. Here's what Adam Clark says about Thomas, his attitude. First, it was utterly unreasonable. Ten of his brethren witnessed that they had seen Christ, but he rejected their testimony. They're all lying, Thomas. His unbelief became obstinate. He was determined not to believe on any evidence that it might please God to give him. He put the conditions down. I'm not going to believe unless I see such and such and such and such. You would think it's up to God to present evidence and let him choose what evidence to present to you. But he said, I'm not going to believe unless I see certain evidence. Mark with the nails on his hands and the wound in his side. He would believe according to his own prejudices or not at all. Thirdly, Clark continues, His unbelief became presumptuous and insolent. A view of the person of Christ will not suffice. He will not believe, that is he, unless he can put his finger into the holes made by the nails in the Lord's hands. Well, I mean, you know, you're looking right at the man that you spent three years with, and you don't believe? Well, now, of course, you can say Jesus changed his form, like he did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. But I don't think that's what it is. I think his unbelief is what shielded him from believing. He said, well, yeah, this man looks like Jesus, but I don't think he is. He's just his twin brother. (laughs) He's just somebody else. It's not Jesus. Now this is the same Thomas that at one time expressed courage and devotion, if you recall when Jesus and Peter at the Lord's Supper said, I'll never deny you. In John 11, verse 16, then Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let's go so that we may die with him. That was at the same time. Thomas has expressed the desire to die with Jesus, but now he doesn't believe in him. By the way, a little factual aside here, why was Thomas called twin? Probably, possibly because he was a twin, his parents called him thus. That makes sense to me. Why was he not there when Jesus showed up? I just think it's a random reason. He might have needed to go to the bathroom. You know, who knows? He might have been out buying some food. Jameson, Foster and Brown, on the other hand, say he was intentionally absent from sullen despondency. In other words, he was ticked off about what had happened, and so he was off crying in his beer, crying by himself. Maybe. Don't know. Let's move on now to John 20, verse 26. We go to the next week. We're finished with Sunday night, the first resurrection Sunday night. Now we go to the next Sunday night after eight days, which is the next Sunday night. His disciples were indoors again, hiding from the Jews, and Thomas was with them this time. Even though the doors were locked, same situation, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace to you. Now when it says, even though the doors were locked, this does sound, make it sound like Jesus walked right through the wall. And I'm willing to go along with that, even though... It could be that the door was supernaturally unlocked and he came in, or it could be he just knocked on the door and asked somebody to let him in. doesn't really matter. He said, peace to you. He said, peace to them last the previous Sunday. He says, peace to them again. Shalom. We read in verse 21, he, he said, peace to them the Sunday before. Jesus here seems to be emphasizing what he told them at the time of the Last Supper. And this is in John 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. And this is when Jesus was about to get crucified. Great time to be troubled or fearful. And Jesus said, in the middle of all that hell, peace I give to you. The world can't give you this kind of peace. I love that verse. Now, they were meeting again on Sunday night. It sounds like they were having a church meeting. No, they were probably meeting every day of the week, trying to figure out, what are we going to do? We don't want to get arrested. But Jesus said that he was going to establish the kingdom. But now it looks like he's dead. What's going on here? Jamison, Fawcett, and Brown speculate that the Lord chose this day, Sunday, to appear to them again so that he might inaugurate the habit of meeting on the Lord's Day. Maybe so. The disciples were probably in the same private house that they were in the previous Sunday night. Now, notice that Thomas is still with them. He might not have believed in the resurrection, but he's still identified with the outcast disciples. His heart was in the right place. John 20, verses 27 through 29 read as follows. Then he said to Thomas, that's Jesus, said to Thomas, Put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. He believed now. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Those who believe without seeing are blessed. Now, who has believed without seeing? Well, that would have been very few at the time, obviously, because people didn't know about Jesus rising and the the gospel had not been preached. And so most of the people who believed actually had seen Jesus. But, of course, these words apply to future believers as well, because we don't see him personally. We we don't see his body physically. We don't see him, but we believe him anyway. And we're blessed because we believe without seeing him. There might have been some in Jerusalem who believed from the testimony of those who had seen the women. Mary Magdalene, there might have been a few, but mostly not. But now the fact that Jesus says that we are blessed without having seen, that puts every future believer on an even plane with an early disciple who saw Jesus face to face. So says Adam Clark. In other words, we can believe even though we can't see Jesus face to face. We are blessed. We can believe without actually seeing Jesus we suffer no loss for not having seen Jesus. Now, in verse 27, when Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and observe my hands, he was not reproaching Thomas. Now, you know, as Adam Clark said, Thomas's attitude was pretty obstinate, pretty skeptical. But Jesus had love for him. He said, you're weak, Thomas. You can't believe I'm going to help your belief. He went a long, long way to help Thomas's unbelief. Now, this is comforting for people today who have trouble believing Jesus. Like I said, when I was young, I was a skeptic before I got filled with the Holy Spirit, before I started seeing some miracles, and but before I did see those miracles, I prayed, God, please, God, I can't believe all this miraculous stuff in the Bible. Please show me a miracle. I, I kind of asked for a particular type of uh, evidence that I might believe, just like Thomas did, and yeah, maybe I shouldn't have, but that was my weakness, and Jesus helped me in my weakness, and I am forever grateful. I don't see anything wrong about praying for something where you're weak. And so even though Thomas might have been a little bit presumptuous by demanding a certain kind of proof, Jesus was very gracious and showed him the proof. Why? Because of his hard attitude. He was still there with the disciples. And he had told Jesus early, I'm going to die with you. So he had a good attitude, even though he had trouble believing. Now notice Jesus said, reach out and touch my wounds. Put your hand in my side. Well, he said, observe my hands. And then he said, reach out your hand and put it into my side. It doesn't say that Thomas actually did that. John Gill and Jameson Fossum Brown say that Thomas actually did not take Jesus upon the offer that he believed after he merely saw the wounds. Verse twenty-nine seems to indicate that indicate that because indicate that because Jesus said because you have seen me, you have seen me. In other words, you've seen the wounds, not that you've touched the wounds. Okay, well that's probably true, not necessarily. However, Adam Clark said that very probably that, that Thomas did touch the wounds, so that's an open question. Now, even though Jesus was very gracious in showing Thomas the evidence that Thomas needed to believe, nonetheless, when he said, blessed are those who have seen, this is sort of a tacit rebuke, according to John Gill and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, and I'm saying this, Jesus always expected to be believed. He could not, he didn't deal with unbelief very well. He just said, oh, you have little faith. He was constantly saying that. He really believed us, he wanted, to, expected us to believe him. Now notice that, Jesus, that Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Jesus is addressed as God here. And Thomas is the first person to ever address Jesus as God. We call him Tom, Doubting Thomas. But we might ought to remember that he was the first person to confess with his mouth that Jesus was God. You Believe in his heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Then, you were, then you're saved. You know that famous verse in Romans 10. When Thomas was the first person that, that confessed Jesus as God. And that, of course, that Jesus resurrected from the dead, f- implicit from the circumstances. Now, it's interesting that the disciples from this point on do not treat Jesus with the same familiar- familiarity that he did that they did before. Adam Clark points this out. They give him the most supreme respect. I doubt they're saying, hey, Jesus, pass me the honey. Hey, Jesus, I need some more fish. I mean, I'm sure they always treated him with respect because they kind of held him in awe as he was doing the miracles. But now he's resurrected from the dead. He's pro- they probably treated him with even more respect and awe. Now you notice that when Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, Jesus accepted that address with no complaint. Why? Because he knew he was God. This shows that he knew he was God and it shows that he was God. If Thomas had made a mistake in calling him God, Jesus, if he were an honest man or a prophet, he would have said, no, I'm not God. I'm just a man. I'm an honest man or I'm a prophet. But no, he said, yeah, that's right. I'm God. I'm God. Thomas responded. He was overpowered and was overjoyed when he responded that way, my Lord, my God. Going on to verse 30 and 31 in John 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. And John kind of summarizes his, his, his narrative here. But these are written so that you may believe. There's the purpose of the whole book of the Gospel of John. These are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Now when he says the signs performed many other signs, other signs than the ones that were done all through the Gospels and recorded, well, actually, all those that were recorded by John. He did some more signs that weren't recorded by John, and, and those other signs were done in the presence of his disciples. That gives it a little bit more credibility because the disciples were firsthand witnesses of the apostles. In other words, you don't believe he did miracles? Well, go ask his disciples, those of you who read this book while, while his disciples are still alive, go ask those disciples. They will tell you of the miracles he did. You know, the the Pharisees never complained about Jesus doing miracles. They never said his miracles were fake. They couldn't. The evidence was too strong. John is a big believer in evidence. He's constantly talking about testifying. Signs, 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 signs. In fact, the English Standard Version of John chapter 20, verse 30, has a heading. And the heading says this, the purpose of the book. And the verse says Jesus performed many other signs. That's the purpose of the book. Why? In verse 31, they are written so that you may believe. Jesus is the Messiah, so there's your signs. John stresses testimony. John had an evangelistic purpose, as the NIV study Bible says. "Now at the end, it says, these miracles were done so that you may believe that believing in Him, that you by believing may have life in His name." This is not a superstitious thing. I believe in Jesus, therefore I believe. No. The name stands for all the characteristics and attributes of Jesus. His name represents all that he is and stands for, according to the NIV study Bible. Now let's go back to this word in verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs. Other besides what? I said other signs than the ones that were recorded by John in his book and they were done after the resurrection. Could be. Could have been signs that were done before the resurrection, but John just didn't record. He could be referring to the walking through the door when the door was locked. Jesus performed many other signs besides walking through the door. Well, that's clever. That's John Gill. I don't believe that's true. I just means it means others. I think it means other signs that weren't recorded in the Book of John by John. All right, folks. That finishes up the appearance of Jesus to the disciples on those two Sunday nights—Resurrection Sunday night and the next Sunday night. We've got all of them believing now, including Thomas. They're getting ready to head off to Galilee. Now, John chapter 21 describes Jesus's appearance there at the Sea of Galilee—the appearance to seven of them at least. Um, they he cooks food for them to prove he's not who he is to remind them that he's Jesus and that he's not a ghost. He has another miraculous draft of fishes to remind them of the original draft of fishes when the boat Simon's boat filled up. That proved to them that he was Jesus. He's constantly doing proofs to prove to these guys that Jesus. He appears to 500 people, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, and all that. But we're not going to talk about the next audio because that's in John 21. He also uh, rehabilitated Peter. He told him three times, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? All that's very interesting. When I get to John chapter 21, I will talk about that in detail. But in the next audio, we are briefly going to look at the end of Mark and talk about the appearance of, the end of mark chapter 16 which is also the end of the gospel of mark and we're going to talk about the appearance to jesus of about 500 people on a mountain in galilee and the great commission hope you enjoyed this audio see you see you in the next one